Dr. Patrick Reardon, you're a Jesuit. You are from Ireland, but you're lecturing over in England. But you were here at the weekend because you were taking part in the Living Humanely Perspectives from Law, Morality and Science, which was a major conference in Trinity College Dublin with the Loyola Institute. And and that conference was in the context of the debate around the Eighth Amendment. They wanted to host this sort of an academic forum for debate on issues of law and morality and science. You're a philosopher. What was your contribution? Well, I was looking at the philosophy of law specifically and making the argument that I might embrace a secular, liberal philosophy of law, but it doesn't follow from that that I am going to endorse a permissive law on abortion. Taking a a liberal and secular stance, I might well think that it is inappropriate, it is wrong for the law to endorse the taking of a life. Now, much of the debate about this has been couched in the language of rights. And I think the language of rights is not a helpful language for conducting this debate. Very often there's a polarisation between the the right to life of the mother and the right to life of the baby growing in the womb. Or there's a conflict between the right to life and the right to freedom to choose. The language of rights is not terribly helpful. And we have a good example in John Locke who often is said to be the philosopher who first articulated the doctrine of natural rights as a basis for government and for law. But when you look at Locke's writings on the second treatise of civil government, for instance, from 1690, uh, he begins by describing a situation of perfect equality and perfect freedom where people without government, without law, can live, guided by a knowledge that they ought not harm another in their life, liberty and possessions, and that one ought to come to the aid of another who is in distress, as long as that's not at the risk of one's own survival. So the idea is that Locke begins actually with obligation, with the notion of duty. There is a duty not to harm. And Locke then goes on, on the basis of that notion of obligation and, ob- and duty, to say, well, then there are rights corresponding to those obligations. If someone should not harm me in my life, liberty or possessions, that means I have a claim over against them that they not harm me. I have a right against them that they not harm me in my life, liberty or possessions. But the fundamental idea is obligation. And curiously, Locke says people would not be able to live satisfactorily in a situation, in a state of nature, as he calls it, where people had their rights. Because knowing your rights leads to conflict. People will have a sense of what their own entitlements are and will claim those entitlements, but they inevitably will come into conflict with others who also have a sense of their rights and what they are entitled to. So Locke says in the state of nature there's an inconvenience due to the lack of a settled known law. People have an, an awareness, a consciousness of their own entitlements and their own rights, but it is not a settled public agreed law. And secondly, Everyone is a judge in his own case in the state of nature. There's a lack of an, ar- of an independent arbitrator. And thirdly, everybody has to enforce the law themselves in the state of nature, according to Locke. There's an absence or a lack of uh, an executive power that would be capable of delivering uh, what the law and the judges require. So it's very interesting, looking back at that discussion, to see that Locke thought that a debate conducted purely in terms of rights, you know, moral or natural rights, would be inconclusive. That what we need in society is settled law that determines who is entitled to do what. Obviously, the law will always have a limit 
there will be difficulties and disadvantages. But it is better to have settled known law than to have a situation where people are arguing in terms of their rights. And so that's a parallel you can see to debates that are going on today about how we accommodate the issues that arise around abortion. If we rely on the language of rights, it is very unhelpful. It doesn't lead to an accommodation to an arrangement that actually allows people to do what they ought to do to deliver on their duties and obligations. That's very interesting exploration and, and very important distinctions there that could be very helpful then in the Eighth Amendment debate. Yes, indeed. So the Eighth Amendment has introduced a change into the Constitution, which, as, we're, as we know, guarantees the protection of rights, the rights to life of mother and child equally. But that doesn't exhaust all the problems that arise around difficulties in pregnancy. And one of the issues that needs to be addressed is... What freedom of action does the medical profession have to deal with difficult cases? It is true the medical profession needs to be constrained by that rule that John Locke articulated, do no harm. But good medical carers at all levels, they don't want to harm the mother or the child. They want to do their best for them. But there are tragic cases where, for instance, a woman uh, discovers she has cancer. And can the treatment for cancer continue and be compatible with pregnancy at the same time? Uh, Who will be harmed by it? The law tends to expect there will be a black and white answer to this. And often the law formulates, especially if we're formulating it in terms of rights, the right to life, equally to be protected. It is too grey an area for that black and white attitude of constitutional law to apply. On the other hand, I would want to say, having that right already adopted into the Constitution, one of my colleagues, Neville Cox, Professor of Law, at this conference on Friday was making the point, there is no precedent for removing from a Constitution an acknowledged right. And what are the consequences of doing this legally from the perspective of philosophy and perspective of law? When you institutionalize certain rights and hold them up as constitutional rights, how can you then say this is no longer a right, this is no longer a constitutional right? What would be the consequences of that down the road? We just cannot anticipate what those consequences might be. So my own personal view is that we need to ask of the Oireachtas to make law, to make law that is sensitive, A, to the value of life, no one should harm another, that is, there should be no deliberate taking of life, but that's also sensitive to the need to provide scope of action for the medical profession for dealing with difficult cases without fear uh, of being prosecuted for the violation of the right to life. We know that there are hard choices that have to be made by medical practitioners. They need to have some scope, freedom of action, but within constraints. And I think the best way forward is that the Oireachtas make law which can be sensitive and attempting to provide that scope of action for the medical profession and allow it then in due course to be tested for its constitutionality. And out of that debate... It might well be the case that we can find a, an additional wording that might be incorporated into those Articles 40 and its subsections that permit scope of action for the medical profession, subject to the kinds of constraints that are there, not only the protection of life, but case review that goes on in the medical profession so that best practices 
are highlighted and become normative. That's much better than having a permissive law that says up to eight weeks or up to some number of weeks abortion might be legal. Where a woman finds herself pregnant after three months, in many cases it's a moment of joy and delight and people want to share the good news and they don't do it until they are sure. Another woman can have the terrible experience of, oh my God, you know, this is awful, I can't manage this. And we know the two different experiences are there, but the difference is not in the nature of the baby in the womb. The baby in the womb is the same. There's no difference between the two. It's a, a living being that's distinctive and is human. And that comes under the rubric that John Locke articulated way back in the 17th century. Do no harm. It is wrong to harm the life or liberty or processions of another. One of the big philosophers of law who addressed this question was Ronald Dworkin, and he published a very influential book back in the 1995, I think it was, Life's Dominion, addressing the issue of abortion and also euthanasia. And his thinking has become very influential. And I see elements of his thought actually resonating in the contemporary debate. When you hear people say, it's a private matter that a person takes a stance on the nature of the life growing in the womb. That's a line of thinking that comes from Dworkin. He says there are certain things that are private, that people will adopt their own values, they'll choose their religion, they'll choose the things that really matter to them, and one of the things he is saying they will choose is their stance on the nature of the life in the womb. It becomes then a private matter, and he thinks the law has no business interfering in private matters. Well, that goes directly against what people who follow John Locke would say, you ought not harm another in their life, liberty, or possessions. And many of us think that that life growing in the womb is another. It is another human life at the very early stage of its development, but it is another human life growing and ought not to be harmed. It is not a private matter whether or not our civil law protects such lives. It's not a private matter. That is a very public matter. And there is a real issue of boundaries to be drawn there between the private and the public. And Dworkin gets it wrong. And that's part of the argument I wanted to make. Taking issue with this eminent secular liberal philosopher, I don't agree with him on that division of the private and public. And I can still embrace a secular liberal philosophy of law following John Locke. You've been lecturing in Heathrop College for a long time in England. Abortion has been legal in England since the 19, late 1960s. Have the doctors and the law not already solved the problems you're raising? Well, the 1967 Abortion Act is very permissive. And the constraints that are applied to allowing abortions require the signatory of two physicians. And the kinds of things that they have to check for are that the reasons given for the abortion fall within the parameters envisaged by the law, which include the health of the woman, the health of the mother, and her well-being, which is a much broader category than health, obviously, and life. But it has been stretched to mean, in practice, people's lifestyle and concerns about their career and their employment and how convenient it is to have a pregnancy right at this time when they are due for promotion and so on. Now, that has been the practice that has been stretched to enable physicians to give their okay. Now, you read reports of some physicians filling in the blank forms and therefore, as some people call it, a box-ticking exercise. But it turns out to be illegal. 
the law should be applied as it is. And one also reads reports of people from the South Asian community, for instance, relying on abortion as an instrument of sex selection. They don't want to have more female children. For one reason or another, female children turned out to be more troublesome, more expensive or whatever. So people want to have a boy. And when they discover from the prenatal testing that there is a, a girl on the way, they opt for an abortion. And unfortunately, it is being allowed. And when this is brought to the attention of the authorities, because that is illegal, they are not prosecuting it. So people are really concerned that the constraints built into the law are not being enforced. And a study by a Dutch Jesuit looking at the way the law in the Netherlands also has been implemented shows that constraints built into the law there, again requiring counselling, is not in practice followed. It's the convenience of of coming into the system and then being processed, that that is the way it works. So I think while I would want to argue very strongly for ensuring that in Irish law we are allowing scope of action for the medical profession to act on good medical reasons, and this is where there has to be clinical case review and best practice noted and made public and so on, we cannot adopt a law that drifts in the direction of abortion on demand, which is what effectively we have in Britain today, in the United Kingdom. And that is why I am really concerned that the protection of the value of life be maintained. There are other values as well, including the scope of action for the medical profession to care for both the, both the patients, mother and child, as best they can. But tragically, it isn't always possible to do the best for both. And hard decisions have to be made. And also decisions that are not definitely black and white, where people know 100% what the likely outcomes are going to be. There are difficult decisions, but there is a value there for the medical profession to be facilitated to give the best medical care. And I think that is not done by a, a very narrowly focused law. We need to incorporate into civil law some of that value while at the same time maintaining the constraint that life is to be protected. Again, in Britain, you can see sometimes that the expectation of a Down syndrome child is taken as grounds for abortion. My grandniece is a Down syndrome baby, a delightful character, Martha, who is growing now and is becoming a source of great life and joy. Hard work. Parents are really in demand. <laughs> they have to work at it. But it's like Martha in the Bible. You know, Jesus has to say to her when she's going on about Mary not doing her bit, Jesus says to her, Martha, only one thing is necessary. And I think that's the message of my grandniece, Martha, to her family and to us, as is the message of many other children with difficulties. Only one thing is necessary, love. It's love. And that is shown in the care we give to those who need that care. And I think we need a much more realistic approach in our law that enables our professional carers to give that kind of care without having the fear of being prosecuted. And the best way forward on that is keep the change that we have in Article 40.3.3, enact legislation that facilitates the medical profession, and if necessary, have it tested for its constitutionality. And I would hope that the judges of the Supreme Court will not simply be literalists or narrow-minded trying to enforce a letter of the law. They will understand the spirit that care is to be given, but in the boundaries of constraint, do not harm another in their life or liberty or possessions.
And finally then, that, that would obviously protect the life of the mother because the issue has been raised that mothers would be concerned that their life would, as you say, in this co- the current constitution, the equal right to life has left doctors, some doctors, confused. And clarity around that might work in terms of the care of the mother as well. One of the papers presented at our conference by the professor of midwifery in Trinity College who instanced to us how these difficult cases arise. And it's not just a case for a single doctor. There's a team, there's a whole team of carers involved in their different professions. And there are some situations that I am not competent to talk about because I'm not in the medical profession. It's not that they are confused It is that they are aware the law is hanging over them with a threat of punishment, restricting what it is that they might do. And they cannot see why the best medical practice, as far as they can understand it, is one that should allow them to care for the mother, the child, and with equal concern of the life of both, which isn't always possible. And therefore, when they do have to make a choice and give a priority, that they are not in fear of prosecution.